Hi, and welcome to Figure of Speech, a program from WRBH where every week you can meet local poets and writers from the New Orleans community and listen to them share their work. This episode, we welcome on writer Kate Root. Take a listen. Hi, my name is Kate Root. I am a writer who lives in New Orleans. I'm also one of the producers of Dogfish uh, Reading Series, which happens once a month at a home in St. Rock. You can find more information about us at dogfishneworleans.com. And for me, just Google Kate Root. I got Twitter. I got Facebook. I got Patreon. I've got a tiny letter. I've got everything. Um, Today I'm reading from my manuscript and process. I've been working on a book for a little over a year, I think. And this is a mixed genre manuscript. And I hope you enjoy it. Thank you so much. A novel is a mercy. A friend of mine titled an essay, A History We Can Live With, and I was jealous of its simplicity. Don't all essays seek that, not to just unearth truth or highlight beauty, but to illuminate a truth with its own beauty, something winning enough that we can bear to call it a piece of our lives. Truth is a funny thing, and I don't mean the truth because I don't believe in absolutes. But here's something. Truth lives inside us all the time, and I think it gets up to more trouble when stuck away into private places. The burn of shame makes truth stickier, crueler, harder to bear. I'm fat. I was a virgin until I was 24. I had weight loss surgery. I'm still fat. I like myself better than I used to. I fell in love and it worked out until it didn't. I learned to sleep with doubt. I fell in love with a married man. I didn't sleep with him. I slept with other men. I don't think any of them were married, but honestly, I don't always ask. These are things I live with, part of me. Each one, alone, could be intolerable. Don't you see it, how they could burn some of these admissions? How if I kept them to myself and told myself every day how bad they were, that no one would accept these ugly parts of me, how truly intolerable they would seem, how impossible they could make life seem. And yet, let me tell you a story. Dorothy Allison begins two or three things I know for sure, her memoir and monologue on storytelling. She writes about the ugly women in her family, how life made them ugly by wearing them down. She writes about family members she can't name, their fates dashed off or guessed at, car accident, drank to death, disappeared. She writes about being raped at four and abused for years, about loving her mama more than anybody in the world, even though her mama stayed married to that raping terror of a man. I should have ended that sentence to stress it differently. More than anybody in the world, Dorothy Allison loved her mama. Is that true now? I think about things I know from backs of book covers. Dorothy Allison has a partner. She has a son, Wolf. Maybe now she loves Wolf more than anybody in the world. I talk about Dorothy like I know her, like her story is my story, but it isn't my story, not really. But I read it, and it became part of me. My story is that I am a reader, first, foremost, my favorite thing in the world. And I've been thinking lately, maybe all readers are perverts. We eavesdrop and snoop and lurk to try to figure out what really happened. We chase that deep down thrill. That's the pervert, some kindly normal person in bed with a book, enthralled and almost embarrassed about it. 
indulging a piece of their private places by pretending to look at someone else's. I keep asking myself who I'm being merciful to by calling this a novel. My mom, maybe, although I think she's gotten used to me. Maybe it's a kindness to the people I've written about, or people who know the people I've written about, or people who think they know me. I'm giving them permission to say, it's fiction. But I think really it's a mercy to the perverts. I want you to do whatever you want. Feel dirty or feel proud, titillated or disgusted. You don't have to call it part of you. I accept you anyway. One last thing. I met Dorothy Allison once. I went to go hear her talk. It was sort of in the middle, chronologically, of all the mess in this book. I was in love with the married man and trying not to talk to him for a few months, proving eventually I'd be able to do it, the same way I quit smoking cigarettes to prove that I could live without him. Reason sometimes isn't reason, you know that. But I went and listened to Dorothy Allison talk about the fictive dream, and afterward I waited to have her sign my copy of two or three things I know for sure. I tried to be patient and kind to everyone around me. I didn't want to take up too much space, and I didn't want to be pushy. I didn't want to take anything extra from Dorothy Allison because she'd already given me everything I needed. When I walked up, she looked at me and said, You poor thing. I was embarrassed that she'd seen my soul so plainly naked. I told her that one time my friend and I had taken hallucinogens and read two or three things to each other, an ecstatic experience. She said that I should look up the video of her performance because really, us Yankees couldn't do it justice. I feel like I'm supposed to be insulted here, but I just can't feel any shame about my truth. With a love like that, I get into the habit of playing Abbey Road before work. One morning, the artificially cheery help starts blaring into the distance I expected after Her Majesty. I think about how, for so long, my perception of the Beatles was all sheen and high gloss, all twist and shout, all yeah, yeah, yeah. Romanticizing distance gives an easy inroad to fantasy. These cute young men just want to hold your hand and let you drive their car. I imagine scenes from 20 years before I was born, bouncing hair on a black-and-white TV, an implanted memory. A wide shot of girls, mouths agape, hands waving frantically or pressed to flush faces, arrested in the same adolescent daydream. People screaming so maniacally we made up a word for it. Far gone, this euphoria feels inevitable, predestined, inert. But then Paul starts singing I've Just Seen a Face, and I gasp. I know I've heard this song before, but it's fixed so deep in my consciousness that I forget it was ever a thing that was written. The melody feels like a part of me from lost time. The movements pull me back to girlhood. In the moment, I mistake this fluttery, fanciful feeling for pleasure. I realize later it is the birth of an ache. I don't blame myself for unwarranted optimism. I have always loved sad songs that sound joyful. I've just seen a face. I can't forget the time or place where we just met. She's just the girl for me, and I want all the world to see we've met. I know I'm going to want some time with this one. When the song ends, I hit the backtrack button. Then I hear a soft 
winding guitar I don't recognize. I realize I had missed these first 10 seconds. They are part of the whole. A crevice inside me widens. I start to either imagine or remember a man with a guitar. He wants me to guess which song he's playing. I can't, so I just smile at him instead. Had it been another day, I might have looked the other way and I'd have never been aware, but as it is, I'll dream of her tonight. I know I am choosing to enter a trance when I set the song to auto-repeat. I'll listen for maybe 20 minutes, maybe two hours, maybe days on end. I lock myself in this headspace to see what it does for me. Take two minutes and turn it into eternity. Line up stretches of two minutes and let them create a world of cacophonous emotions. For two minutes, I get to dream about the man with a guitar all I want. My bopping head swirls with memories of ambiguously intimate moments and fantasies of definitively intimate moments that won't come to pass. I blanket my interior world with compounding two-minute plays of a shallow love song. Two minutes where I never remember to listen to all the lyrics in order. Two minutes where I obsess over scraps, never bothering to knit together the whole meaning. Two minutes locked in rhythm, two minutes bolstered by refrain, two minutes of in the wind, infatuation falling. Yes, I am falling. And she keeps calling me back again. I like this song because it just says falling. It truncates the in love. I like truncating love too. I like it because Paul sings about a girl he doesn't know at all. He's singing about a face. Why is any one particular face your favorite? What if you love the wrong face? I've known fantasy, and I've known love, and maybe it's heresy, but shallowness appeals to me. If it's just a face you're dealing with, you get to write both parts. I have never known the like of this. I've been alone, and I have missed things and kept out of sight, but other girls were never quite like this. I left love behind last year. I decided that it didn't serve me anymore. There was too much real life in it. Too many decisions of what to make for dinner, too much stress over getting the bills paid, too many arguments about dirty dishes or too tender crushes or why I have to be so mean sometimes. My ex-partner once told me he felt like he was competing with phantoms. The man with the guitar wasn't the first. I also wasted energies on a poet, a drunk, a gardener, on basically anyone who laughed at my jokes was kind to me, or gave me the right kind of crooked smile. We shared a bed for five years. Sometimes he'd reach for me as I slept, and I pushed his hand away. I didn't want to be tethered to reality, not even by love. I've started to wonder if my addiction to dream is my most self-destructive quality. There are no more lyrics to quote. Everything repeats from here. This is excerpts from an essay I wrote called Pals, the Married Man on Me, which is published on Catapult. The wink. He loves to wink. It happens so often I forget winks aren't part of everyday interaction. Couldn't wink like him if I wanted to. There's nothing cartoonish about it. Every wink of mine screams, I'm winking, wink, wink. His grin is fixed. No Elvis quiver wrinkles his lips. He flashes that lid as an independent actor, practically daring me to miss the gesture entirely. He winks when I make a good joke. He winks when somebody else says something funny. He winks just because I'm looking at him. 
I resist the urge to fantasize. I rationalize. It isn't a stretch to say he loves to wink, but maybe it would be a stretch to say that he loves accidentally brushing against me. I don't know what he loves except the things he is proud to profess loving. His wife. Raw oysters. The Beatles. Jokes. Swimming pools. The wink is safe cover, and to make it lascivious is a perversion. This wink is for family, for allies, for anyone you can trust with a secret. It is no more flirtatious than a baby's giggle. It says nothing except, I see you. The point. The first time the married man got mad at me, we were in his kitchen, just the two of us, telling stories. Maybe this was the time he told me all about his wedding, queuing up the playlist, reliving it through telling me, retroactively instating me into these memories, so when he uses shorthand, I'll know what he's talking about. We got on the subject of doctors, and he told me how long it had been, an old man joke, who was president the last time I went to the doctor? I responded exactly the way you'd suspect. I tried to tell him important stories about hating going to the doctor, but doing it anyway because we owe it to the people we love to try not to die. He raised his voice, pointed a finger at me. Do you think you're the first person to say this to me? If I was going to listen to anyone, it would be my wife. I felt like I'd been slapped. I wondered aloud whether I should leave. He said no, his voice back to normal. There was some relief to getting it over with. I knew he had a temper, and now I knew what the outburst looked like. I thought then that what I was assenting to was, sometimes I get angry, but it's over quickly. The touch. Hanging out alone with the married man feels like playing house. It's not like I forget his wife at home, but I'm happy to be mistaken for her for a spell. It's good to be around someone who will hold the door, carry the heavy thing, warn me to watch my step. It almost doesn't matter that I'm always more concerned he's having a good time than vice versa. We have another one of those nights, just the two of us. We go to a high-rise hotel bar to watch fireworks on the river. He starts to touch me a little. He passes a drink and his palm is on my palm for longer than it needs to be, then fireworks. I start to shriek, point. I realize how close we are, skin touching, arms, shoulders, his hip against mine. The next day, trying to sort leftover feelings, I wonder, why does this have to be about lust? Why can't I just call it comfort? The married man says, you and I are pals, and he says his friends are his family and it's forever. He says, you and I are pals, and after a long time, I don't wish it were I love you. He says, you and I are pals, and I think loving you so much isn't that bad. I used to love him way, way, way more than I was supposed to then. It was way, way more, way more, more. Maybe now it's only a little more. When I thought I loved him too much, it was a problem in my life. My way out was to write the narrative. I thought I was in love with him and we belonged together. But I was wrong. 
One night, I look up pal, etymology, Sanskrit to Romani, brother, mate. Saturday. We are in the air still, him, me, a balcony, a set of furniture that used to be his grandmother's that I broke and he fixed. I helped with the shopping, felt involved, even though it was the real he and she that actually did the repairs, sweat drops, a staple gun, muttered curses, pride. But here and now, it is him and me, drinking coffee. And I say the line I've been working on, so... I wrote an essay about our friendship. His face makes an explosion, a long whistling fall, then a burst of air, this pantomime crash. He asked me if X will be upset, and I say, I don't think so. And he asked again, and I said the same, because she'd always been so breezy to me, how not a problem the whole thing was. (laughs) He didn't want to talk about it after that. I asked if he had questions, and he said yes, but... Uh, She should read it first, and then she'll tell me if I should read it. We whiled away our last hours together talking about nothing. He pulled out his guitar one last time, this fiddling of energy. We didn't make any plans or really even enjoy ourselves. We just avoided goodbye, waiting for her to get home. Monday, 6 a.m., I stand between two gates, wait for him. I know the second before he idles. I can pick out his sound from the ambient noise, just like I tell you to start running five minutes before downpour. In the car, quiet, I smell his wintergreen gum, listen to his mouth move. We are halfway through this five-minute car ride. Dark blue world like the car is in a tunnel, but it's not. And he says, so I read your essay, his voice still light, almost a joke behind it. Objectively speaking, it's very, very good. And you know, you can write whatever you want, but subjectively, I don't think you should have given it to me and I don't think you should have given it to X. She's very, very upset and I don't think she's ever going to talk to you again. His mouth moves and at the same time we move. We go from street to parking lot. We exit a car and walk into a building. We walk upstairs and then down them. We stop in the subterranean space. He smiles. I know this is a lot first thing in the morning and this doesn't mean we aren't friends. His mouth keeps moving. But this is the end. In The Art of Cruelty, Maggie Nelson clarifies how we can judge whether a piece of art is cruel. She cautions, the cruel to oneself obviates cruelty to others fallacy is a sham. And what looks like meaningful divine suffering to one person often looks like brutal preventable cruelty to another. Revenge Poems is a purposeful act of cruelty. The work serves to illuminate the unspoken, unnamed cruelties that were excised from the story of pals. It asks whether speaking of cruelty and delineating its contours can be crueler than living with cruelty. Arguments you may wish to use in appealing your scarlet letter. One, he tricked me. Two, he started it. Three, he's the one who made vows. Four, I didn't do anything wrong. Four, A, I didn't do anything you wouldn't do. Four, A, one, under your breath, except tell the truth. Four, B, I don't even know you anyway. Four, C, under rare circumstances, I 
thought you knew and were cool with it. 4C1. I mean, we even talked about it. 4C11 multiple times. 4C11A once at length. 4C11A1. I know you remember. You asked me, what did you say to my husband? Phrase like that. Didn't use his name. We were waiting in line for the bathroom at the bar. Everything went cold and I searched my mind and found truth. Spit it back verbatim. What I had said to him two days earlier. How I thought maybe sometimes you got upset because it seemed like he and I were the unit, not you and him. And you spat back. It's fine. I don't care. 4C11A11. I see now I shouldn't have believed you. 4C11A11A. Your insistence in retrospect. A dad giveaway. 4C11A11A. Bullet. I don't care. Bullet. You two can do whatever you want. Bullet. I just want the same. Bullet. Monogamy is an easy bullet. Does anything matter? After it turns to bullets. Apologies, I skipped. AKA, in solidarity. AKA, a real cunt's poem. I'm sorry your husband looked at my body. I'm sorry he said that my laugh was in his top five favorite laughs, then started counting and got through number three before you piped up. I'd better be on that list. I'm sorry he went out to one last dinner with me. I'm sorry he pretended he could still be friends with me until he realized there was no and slash or it was only me or you. I'm sorry he told us we should trust each other. I'm sorry I cruelly called your bluff. I'm sorry for all the times I only looked at him. I'm sorry for all the times I asked you to comfort me, how I couldn't believe he would say something so calculated to hurt me. I'm sorry that you told me he had said all that stuff to you before, too. I'm sorry again for only looking at him. I didn't want to see if you rolled your eyes at us. I wanted to believe you were unbothered. But break in for the cuntiest? I'm not sorry for telling the truth, for writing, for taking advantage of your silence, or for letting your lies slip me off the hook. Oh. It takes me six whole months to wonder whether he got off on the abandonment, too. All the times he wanted to be the emergency contact, one loosening jars, man setting up the record player in my bedroom, fixer of the pesky closet doors always coming off the guide rail. I wonder if that sick little excitement that made his dick twitch when some ill thought crossed his mind or his wife looked jealous if that same surreal stomach upset cavernous desire love of subtext getting away with glory of attention became positively tumescent at the idea of my sadness my bewilderment my pussy up a tree i wonder if secretly he wanted to dump me even more than he wanted to fuck me A quote from one of my favorite novels, Sheila Hetty's How Should a Person Be? Most people live their entire lives with their clothes on, and even if they wanted to, couldn't take them off. 
Then there are those who cannot put them on. They are the ones who live their lives not just as people, but as examples of people. They are destined to expose every part of themselves so the rest of us can know what it means to be a human. The story after the story behind my tattoo. This is a metaphor, I protest, posting a photo of two oyster shells, empty as the word shell implies, facing off on this big tray of tiny ice. They're the only two still belly up, all the rest defeated, prone, not just slurp to oblivion as these two have been, but overturned, discarded, because even their shell is no longer home. There will never be another oyster alive in there. These two are facing their emptiness. They have yet to be refuse tossed into wetlands to try to make up for what we've lost. Little black dots like eyes, could be looking at each other. Forever. There is an oyster on my arm because one of the times I made the married man tell me again about love, the future, the past, the unknowable. One of the times we sat not facing each other, looking out down elsewhere, he said a lot of things, like he didn't want to be married seven times. I remember that one's divot in my heart. He said, maybe not exactly like this, but he said, love is an oyster. He didn't say it like this. Some are bad and will hurt you. Some you'd be better off frying, masking with horseradish, and some don't need anything. Okay, okay, maybe a squirt of lemon, but still functionally perfect, the perfect oyster for you, and his wife is his perfect oyster, and he will never leave her. I was still unmarked then. All of the ink on my skin washed off, The first time I let the needle gun touch me, the soft flesh of my inner arm, I told myself it was a reminder to believe in love. After my excommunication, I got a lemon, too. I told myself it was a reminder to accept and make the most out of life's bitternesses, but maybe that's bullshit and this oyster needed help. When I feel sad, I rest my head on my oyster to try to hear the vastness of the ocean. I still have your oyster knife. I threw away your art, turned your book into a spore forest. I regret I did not put an axe through your bicycle helmet, but now you have the image anyway. Shards. I keep the dull knife. I remember your forearms. I remember imagining what the abductor must feel. I remember imagining the operations on the tongue tied. Clapping for explosions. Fireworks last night. I watched from the river, stepped away from friends so I'd be alone, leaned on the bumper of an old domestic car and pretended it was you. The finale was so arresting, hand on chest, open mouth, how we forget. I saw your face in it, said goodbye, reminded myself how fitting it was, you and me, watching burning things fall and disappear. That was Kate Root, and that's our show. You've been listening to Figure Speech, a community poetry and writing program from WRBH. You can tune in Saturdays at 1 p.m. and on every Monday at 9 p.m. for more great New Orleans writing. Thanks for listening.